Hello and welcome to the Resiliency by Design podcast. In this podcast, we embark on a journey exploring the multitude of issues woven into climate change. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I will be guiding you through this exploration with the help of experts from the community. These experts are individuals taking action on climate change through adaptation or mitigation. The journey to a future where we can all thrive is not a simple path, but with the guidance of great leaders and a willingness to change, our future on this beautiful planet will be bright. On this episode, we are exploring food and water security and how this security is being challenged by climate change. Joining me in this exploration is Dr. Joanne Taylor, a postdoctorate researcher from the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Joanne is also the facilitator of an upcoming Adaptation Learning Network course entitled Food and Water Security, which starts on May 3rd, 2021. Joanne, thank you so much for joining me. I'm hoping that you can provide our listeners with some insight into your background in food and water security. First of all, I'd like to pay homage to the mountains, the lands, the skies and the water systems and say that I'm an uninvited guest of third generation settler origin, living with my family on the beautiful traditional lands of the Silk Okanagan people. Just a little bit about my background. I have a bachelor's degree in environmental anthropology. So I'm a political ecologist, which means that I study how culture or society affects the environment in negative ways through societal structures of power and control. And likewise, I study how the environment affects things like agriculture and food production, and hence food security. My doctoral research examined food security and food sovereignty during the renegotiation of the Columbia River Treaty on the Creston Valley food plain in the central Kootenays, where processes of extractive resource development controls agriculture and food production. So I wanted to see how that affected food security. Currently, I'm conducting postdoctoral research here in the Okanagan and the Caribou regions of British Columbia, where we're looking at adaptation for agriculturalists during climate change in these two regions. What inspired you about climate action and made you interested in climate adaptation? What inspired me? Well, my research really was an offshoot from my earliest interest in agriculture and food production. My family lineage comes from Dukabur ancestry, and they were always so tied to the land in which they lived on. And I can remember from an earliest age, my grandmother and I being out in the gardens late at night, just tending to the vegetables and the fruit that she was growing, or early in the morning with my mother watering the garden. So I had grown up with this deeper sense of attachment to food and how it was grown and where it came from. And that really stayed with me throughout my life and and throughout my travels around the world. After university, I went backpacking for a number of years and did not live in Canada for about 10 years. During those travels, I was always very interested in the more agrarian aspects of some of the countries that I had traveled in, especially in Southeast Asian countries, Middle Eastern countries. 
from later in life European countries. And it was always so different and identified by the, the environment, the landscape and the topography. There were rice fields and rice paddies up in the highlands of some of the Asian countries like Nepal or India. When I came back to Canada, I, I really saw the difference between how food is produced and where we get our food from. It was the natural stepping off point for me to go into environmental anthropology, which really looks at how culture affects the environment and likewise how the environment affects culture. Very interesting. And your course is all around food security and water security. I'm hoping that you could provide our listeners with a description of what food security is. Well, in its simplest terms, the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization defines the term food security as when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy lifestyle. But we know that this means much, much more than the simple definition. In my own doctoral research, I define food security as also encapsulating food sovereignty and social justice principles, such as who has access to food, gender equality in food production and respect of women's roles and rights in agriculture, the rights for farmers to develop their own trade policies and how that food is produced, environmental and ecological sustainability in food production. And I also look at the needs of the consumer and protection from price fluctuations for them. So to me, this is what defines food security. So it's much broader than the simplistic definition that comes out of the United Nations. That broader definition starts us into this idea of how it's related to um, climate adaptation. Could you go into how food and water security would be related to climate adaptation? Yeah, sure. That's a very good question. Water is inextricably tied to food protection in that the two cannot be dislocated from each other. Climate change is severely affecting the water supply for agriculture. And that is something that my current research project looks at. How can we ensure that future water supply is protected for food production? Each agricultural area deals with its own unique set of climate change challenges, such as drought, flooding, forest fires. We really look at how farmers and, and producers are adapting to those set of climatic change challenges in each area. You can go to the Okanagan and see just a, a breadth of different types of agricultural production, whether that's tree fruits or wine grapes or even dairy and cattle. But you can go up to the plateaus of the caribou and see a totally different landscape. It's dry, it's predominantly range grasses that support the cattle industry. They are dealing with a, a very distinct set of climatic challenges there than they are here in the Okanagan, but both also are dealing with huge impacts that this course will address. There's such different regions in Canada, even within the Okanagan of the caribou region and then in where they're producing grapes and fruit trees. Is there specific regions in Canada with lower food security? 
not so much regions, but different types of society that are experiencing that food insecurity. And that is affected by water security and food security and how that affects various people. So, it, you know, that, that's a big leap to go from water security and food security to who is being affected by food insecurity. And I'll just explain a little bit about how the United Nations defines water security as the reliable availability of an acceptable quantity and quality of water for health livelihoods and production coupled with an acceptable level of water-related risks. So simply put, if we don't have enough water for agriculture in the coming years, then our food supply will be severely affected. And when this happens, our food supply will come under threat for the most marginalized people. Agriculture uses 70% of the world's fresh water supply, and we are tapped out. Food security is also intricately tied to economic accessibility. So financially secure people will be able to afford food that in the coming years due to climate change and water shortage, but those who do not have financial resources will be the most affected. Globally, 767 million people live in extreme poverty mostly within rural areas of fragile countries where the rural poor are dependent upon agriculture for their livelihoods. 815 million people globally were hungry and food insecure in 2016, the last year of the most reliable statistics. Right here in BC, 20.4% of children aged 0 to 17 live below the poverty line, indicating that there are people that are food deprived. We are producing more food and feeding more people than ever before. We have enough grains, we have enough fruits and vegetables and meat to meet that 3,200 calorie per day. And yet 3.5 million children die annually from nutritional deficiency globally. 1.5 billion people on the other hand are overfed. And that's mostly from Western diets. And, and Canada is an OECD country. It is a Western country that has an abundance of food. There are not so much regional issues of poverty and inequality that affects those who are most marginally and oppressed, but there are socioeconomic. 9.2% of Canadian households are food insecure. I don't know about you, but that's a lot to me. The most marginalized peoples who are suffering from food security and poverty are Black Canadian households, which are 3.85 times more insecure than their white Canadian counterparts. Furthermore, adding to this discrepancy, half of all Indigenous peoples are food insecure, including First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and single mothers with children, including the lone elderly, are the most marginalized. And those are the people that are most suffering from food insecurity. So just to add on to that, 4.4 million people in Canada were food insecure before COVID. We're not sure what those numbers are now, but COVID magnifies this trend where poverty is systemic and there are certain communities who have been 
marginalized within community, the groups that I just mentioned. We really need to look at how poverty is structured, and we need to look at this in Canada. It's predicted that there's going to be a doubling of food insecure people by the end of this year, not due just to COVID, but to climate change as well. So this is a critical and very important topic that we need to be addressing. It's not necessarily a specific region, but those socioeconomic ties that are putting the most vulnerable people in even more vulnerable positions. I'm wondering if there is different leverage points within the food system that we can develop more resilient food systems. I'm glad you asked that because it's nice to talk about (laughs) positive aspects instead of dire numbers and situations. We have seen during COVID, for example, some vulnerabilities to the system were revealed. They're not pretty. There are labor shortages, lack of technologies such as indoor greenhouses, for example. A lot of nations retreated from the global system and curtailed food exports. There was a concentration of slaughterhouses and packing plants that were closed so that we couldn't get the meat that we required. Because of these very rigid supply chains, linkage failures resulted in waste. During this shock to the system, I keep going back to COVID because it's a shock like climate change is going to be affecting more and more. During COVID, that dependency on migrant workers and open borders was really affected. Canada's agriculture mostly grows commodities and on an industrial scale for export. And that is not necessarily food, which the course addresses. The industrial scale agriculture mostly goes to feed animals and to make biofuels for export. And therefore, most of our fruits and vegetables and other grocery store items from out of the country. So this is especially worrisome. Here in BC, our food system was quite resilient, notwithstanding the toilet paper fiasco. But smaller scaled community focused farmers, ranchers and other food system actors demonstrated rapid ability to respond. I'll give you some examples. Small scale farmers ramped up production, feeding more families. We saw innovation expanded mechanisms to facilitate direct marketing, for example. New outlets occurred, bulk buying. Uh, Farm direct marketing and online orders proliferated. Feed suppliers also ramped up their kind of production and organization. Bakers and bakeries surged and generally farmers realized that they had to diversify. So those were some of the positive outcomes that we can continue to build on going forward. These local farmers and the local systems really stepped up to Uh, meet the needs of their communities during COVID. And you're going to be covering in your course the um, Okanagan and exploring the impacts of climate change. I'm wondering if you could briefly um, go into what you're going to be looking at in the Okanagan region. My research looks at adaptation. Of course, some people are going to be saying, well, mitigation against climate change is very important. And I believe it is too. We absolutely need to address climate change and the things that are causing climate change. But on the other hand, we are needing to adapt to climate change. 
So to formulate effective adaptation strategies for British Columbia agriculture, I believe that a practical first step is to assess the potential impacts of climate change. We really need to identify both the risks and the opportunities, as well as realistic and practical adaptation measures, which will improve the resilience of, I believe, agricultural production in a changing climate. We work closely with British Columbia Climate Action Initiative, who does a lot of regional research with farmers to identify impacts and, and how to deal with those impacts all over the province. Within the Okanagan region, the region contains 7.8% of BC's total population. It's a significant group of food producers. The effects of climate change are therefore really important to understand. There will be increased variability in precipitation, for example, and this is going to increase flooding. There will be changes to both averages and extremes, so increased storms, heat events, and intensity of rainfall events. There's going to be increased complexity as well, such as earlier peak flows and reduced runoff and soil moisture in the summer, and increased frequency of drought, which is very concerning. There will also be cumulative impacts, such as an accelerated rate of change, increased varieties of pests, and forest fires. This course really looks at those impacts and how we are adapting here in the Okanagan and the Caribou's case studies. I know that around British Columbia, a lot of our fruit, wines, produce comes from the Okanagan region. So I think it's really interesting to see how that would directly impact these people who are taking the course. Absolutely. There are so many impacts. And we're talking a lot about food and these tangible products. But we also have to remember that these points help to create a resilient economy for the community as well. You're talking about the wine grapes and the wineries and being able to sit down to some of that delicious local wine, but those dollars stay within the community as well. So it, it behooves us to support that agricultural industry. This other community that you're going to be talking about, and we've touched on briefly, is discussing Indigenous food sovereignty and how that plays a role in food security in Canada. Could you discuss that a little bit further? Yes, I just want to go back to that original definition of food security that I provide through my own doctoral research. There are an entire range of complexities where food sovereignties are increasingly complicated and complicating Eurocentric accounts of food security by connecting to specific histories, identities, and structures of power to contemporary food struggles across space and time. As I outlined in my definition of food security, it necessarily includes food sovereignty tenants that directly affect Indigenous peoples of Canada. And their food procurement methods, I believe, will ameliorate climate change while addressing issues of social justice, such as Indigenous land rights, systemic racism, inequality, inequity, and food security for a changing climate. I also believe that bridging traditional knowledge and Western science is imperative if we want to address the inequities and climate change. 
So we'll be discussing that a little bit further in that learning module. Interesting. I can see how that broader definition just encompasses more meaning. You can see how the actual systems in communities are playing out. Often so much is lost in those definitions, and I like how you've broadened it to be able to include all of those. This brings me back to this idea of the average person. And I know the average person may not be taking your course. They may be more tied in with the food system or in local communities, but how does the average person in their interactions at the grocery store or with local farmers, how can they enable food and water security? Well, that is a really good question. And I believe that it's essential that we all learn the basics of how to procure local nutritious foods with an understanding that we might be having to adapt to future climate change related social and economic disruptions like we've seen here with COVID. I believe it's never been more important to buy locally produced food to support farmers and our communities. We can learn on a more practical scale how to grow food for ourselves, whether that's a container on your sun deck or porch if you have one, or in a community-supported agriculture setting, so at community gardens. And even if that's just understanding that a seed grows a plant that we can pick and eat fresh or cook, this basic understanding of where food actually comes from increases the value of food and could, in the long run, help us in becoming responsible for our own food security. I know that's difficult to do in an urban setting, but there are urban gardens and urban farmers that are really becoming more aware of where our food comes from. Schools are certainly becoming more aware of that value system of teaching our younger generation about soils and the hydrological cycle and biology. We're all part of that system. Ultimately, we need to really understand that. My next question was going to be who can impact food and water security, but I really think that you covered that in talking that everybody really has a role to play in this. Yes, I totally agree. And as individuals, we can all impact food and water security by just that awareness of the systems that contribute to the clean water supply for ourselves and for agriculture. And that means becoming aware of our water usage and how we use it and food waste and Communities that are environmentally and socially aware of how we operate within these complex systems of hydrology, I think, learn to value and appreciate that holistic web of natural inputs that result in economic sustainability and resiliency within the community to withstand the effects of climate change. Short answer to that question is yes, we can all help to impact food and water security. My last question here is, uh, what is one reason why somebody should take the food and water security course? I can think of a number, but I'm just going to keep it short to say that the world is changing so quickly on such rapid scales that I don't believe we've ever witnessed before. I think it is so important right now to understand how the most basic of life-giving water and food that we cannot survive without is defined and how to protect and ensure that we have these basic human rights to 
food and water. What we are doing now has such a direct impact on societal and environmental outcomes in 30, 50, 100, and even 500 years into the future. So we must envision what kind of a world we want to create and leave for those future generations. I believe it is our moral imperative. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for all of your work in your research and for doing this course. It's wonderful to have this conversation with you. You're very welcome. My pleasure. And it's been lovely meeting you too. And I hope that we can discuss this again in the future. And thank you to everyone who's listening. If you're interested in taking the food and water security course, there will be a link in the podcast description or you can visit the Adaptation Learning Network website. I hope each of you have a wonderful day.